Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to continue our conversation with Dr. Dan McClellan. We're going to dive into the book of Isaiah. How many people wrote it? Was it just one or were there multiple? We'll find out what Dan says. We'll also talk about the Book of Mormon's Isaiah problem. What does Dan think about that? We'll also get into when did Israel become monotheistic? It might be a lot later than you expected. It was definitely a lot later than I expected, I'll tell you that. So you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. <laughs> trying to figure out where to go. Um, William Deaver, one of my favorite <laughs> archaeologists, has a book called God Had a Wife. Did God have a wife? Or did God have yeah, a wife? That's yeah, his, all of his books are um, are snazzy questions. So, who were the early Israelites and where did they come from? Did <laughs> God would, have a wife? I would so love to get him on. I don't, I don't think he does podcasts. but uh, Probably not. <laughs> yeah, if you have any connections, let me know. <laughs> um, so, the idea is, and you've kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, Asherah and... L or an L, yeah. So um, a couple, right? So L is the patriarchal high deity, and Asherah is the consort. So at Ugarit, you have uh, the the children of L are also referred to as the children of Asherah, and Asherah and L are are a pair. Um, and so the seventy children of El are, are basically all the B'nai Elohim, the children of God, and they are the that seventy. That's interesting. Right. Like a quorum of seventy. <laughs> Is that where we get that from? <laughs> so it's it's based on this uh, seventy. Anciently, was just kind of a, a symbolic number for a lot. So today we would say you know a million or a billion. I you know I played golf the other day. I shot a million. You didn't really shoot a million. That's just kind of a symbolic number for a lot. And so 70 was a symbolic number, uh, but if we go into Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, we have this tradition of El Yon dividing up the nations according to the number of the, and then in the in the King James Version in the Masoretic Text, it says uh, the B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. But from the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know that originally it said the B'nai Elohim, the children of God. And if you look in uh, other places in Genesis, uh, Genesis 10, traditions about Jacob, the idea was that there were 70 nations on the earth. And so in Deuteronomy 32, it also seems like the number of the B'nai Elohim was 70. So we have the same concept of children of God numbering 70, who are children of El Yon, or El, the Most High, this patriarchal high deity, and uh, in Deuteronomy 38, 2, 8, and 9, verse 9 says, so we, we have Elion dividing up the nations according to the number of the children of God. And Adonai's portion is Jacob. Israel was the lot of his inheritance. In other words, Adonai is identified as one of the B'nai Elohim, one of the children of God. So this would correspond with the Ugaritic pantheon, which has El and Asherah as the divine parents, and then Baal as one of the children of God, who is the storm deity. And this is one of the indications that uh, Adonai was probably distinct from the God of Israel in earlier periods and was considered one of the children of God. Because somebody told me that Baal and Adonai were brothers. So if we, if we take Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9 as an indication that Adonai was one of the B'nai Elohim, one of the children of God, then Baal would have been one of the other B'nai Elohim. So yeah, you could, have, you could call them brothers. I don't think there are any texts that say that. But 
Yeah, that would that would work that way. So El is the father god, Baal and Adonai are sons Children. of God. Yeah, so there are these second tier deities who have responsibility. Now they're, they're competing for would the Asherah same role. Would have been the daughter of God? In that Asherah sense? would have been the, the wife. No, she would have been consort. the wife of God. Right, right. And so this is, this is what makes people wonder, well, why is Adonai the, uh, have Asherah as a consort? And that's because at one point, probably around 1000 BC, the, this article you mentioned, you suggested that the argument is going to be that Josiah is the one who merged Adonai and El. Right. So I, I think that's probably too late because I think we have text inscriptions from before Josiah's time period that identify Adonai and El and identify Adonai and Asherah as a pair. So the Kuntilad Ajrud inscription, the Kirbet Al-Kom inscription talk about Adonai and his Asherah. And we even have drawings of a male deity, a very male deity, and a female deity with arms interlinked and the inscription above their heads says um, blessings by Adonai and his Asherah. So I would argue that it was probably somewhere around 1000 BCE that El and, A uh, El and Adonai were merged. Probably... Oh, that early. I, I think it was probably around that time period, but we don't have a ton of data. But um, by the 9th century, we have in Israel and Judah, we have kings who are independently attested in some other inscriptions. Uh, so the uh, Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser III, the Tel Dan inscription. We have kings whose names have Yahwistic theophoric elements, and which would suggest to me that the kingdom has already put Adonai um, at the pinnacle of the, pa uh, of the um, pantheon. And, and so I think it was probably somewhere around 1000 BCE because Adonai probably was a lower level deity until somebody um, acceded to the kingship, took the throne, who was a worshiper of Adonai and probably decided if we're going to have our people, you know, um, if we're going to have Adonai be more widely worshipped, we need to merge these two deities and make them one and the same. And that way I can consolidate power. I not only have my Adonai followers, but I have my El followers as well. And so, you know, that could have been Saul. Oh. Um, some, you know, there's... Because the Tel Dan stele, that's the first reference of King David, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it talks about the house of David, right. Uh, and so many scholars would say that suggests, if not that there was a real house of David, at least that very soon, uh, very shortly after that whole period is placed, there's a tradition about a house of David. So um, it functions as some kind of evidence for the historicity of, of a house of David. And there have been some good, there have uh, a couple of people have written books on the, what may be historical behind the story of the rise of David. So Jacob Wright wrote a book on David, Joel Baden wrote a book on David, and I think have advocated for some historicity there, that there was probably a historical King David, but certainly not what we find in the biblical texts. That has been that has been flourished and elaborated on uh, quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Big fish tail, basically. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so... Uh, oh, where was I going? Uh, William Deaver. Um, is that kind of his position that Asherah and El 
and I don't know if I should say slash Adonai, <laughs> were together, basically? Um, if, if I recall, it's been a while since I've read his book. It was published in 2005 originally. But yes, the idea was that the God of Israel had as their consort or their wife uh, Asherah. And that I mean, in some ways, that's really, uh, what's the word? Some LDS would embrace that uh, because we kind of have a Heavenly Mother. Is, yeah. is Asherah Heavenly Mother? Uh, I mean, when we... That's up for other people to, to negotiate. Uh, I've, uh, there are complications with that, like the timing and how, uh, where this all comes from is a little difficult to reconcile with, with LDS concepts of Because it's of more polytheistic, mother. right? But, but I do think that um, you know, we, we've got to re uh, negotiate with this if we're going to make it fit a, a contemporary worldview anyway. And so if, if folks want to think of it that way, I'm, I'm certainly not going to stop them. Um, but I will point out that there, there are complications with, with that, but there are complications with pretty much all attempts to, to um, honor both the, the scholarship and uh, devotional uh, approaches to God. Right, right. Um, so, let's see, where do I want to go next? Um, we've been talking a little bit about Isaiah and Deutero-Isaiah. I've heard actually up to four possible authors of Isaiah. Okay. Have you heard that, or uh, I think this, the standard these days is three. Three. Okay. Yeah. So we have one through thirty-nine, forty through fifty-five, then fifty-six through uh, sixty-six. And so, why do people believe that there are multiple authors of Isaiah? Well, if you go, if you read through the book of Isaiah, paying careful attention to the language, what they're talking about, how they're um, they're framing things, right at chapter forty, there's a marked shift that we're now not talking about a pre-exilic Israel looking forward to um, you know, this judgment from God. We're now talking about all of this stuff as if it's in the past, and not in kind of a prophetic way. This is the point of view has shifted. The author is now looking back at the exile from a later time period. Suddenly, Isaiah's name vanishes from 40 uh, through Second Isaiah 40 to, to 55, the author nowhere claims to be Isaiah. Uh, nowhere claims to be doing prophecy. It's all looking back at what's going on and, and uh, talking about uh, what has happened and Israel's relationship to the nations around them. So that shift in and of itself is reason to wonder what's going on here. That the text has, has changed significantly, and then you have uh, another shift when you get into Third Isaiah or Trito Isaiah, as, as some scholars call it. Now we're looking back at the Persian Empire. We're looking back at uh, Cyrus having conquered Babylon and uh, allowing Israel to go back to uh, their homeland. And Cyrus would be what we would say modern-day Iran, right? Uh, yes, Cyrus was the uh, Cyrus the Great, the leader of the the Persian Empire. But we actually have that in um, we already have that in Isaiah forty five one, where it calls Cyrus by name, uh, my anointed, or in the Greek translation, my Christ. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, Cyrus is is one of the only 
uh, people named as an anointed of God in uh, in the Hebrew Bible, and that's and that's the the uh, Persian emperor. I hate to ask this question, but was he the Donald Trump of his day? <laughs> I think he was a, a little more empathetic than uh, than Trump. the The Persian Empire found that there were they they had a different approach that uh, a happy subject was an obedient subject so they actually allowed people to return to homelands they allowed them to to um, do the worship that they wanted to do and so in many ways persia had a a, a lighter um, imperial hand than uh, the assyrian empire and the babylonian empire before but when scholars examine what's going on in Isaiah 1 through 39 and 40 through 55 and, and the later ones, there are just three very, very different perspectives that are being represented, different time periods, different uh, styles, different content. And uh, when we try to home in on when is this being written, when would this literature uh, have the most rhetorical impact, like when does this seem to be... When do these issues seem to be the most pressing? We have uh, first Isaiah, probably the earliest portions are in the 8th century, probably go back to a historical Isaiah with some later insertions. And then second Isaiah is something that was probably written in the late exilic or post-exilic period. And then third Isaiah is probably written um, in the Hellenistic period. So, Can you give approximate years for those? Yeah, so um, the... Exilic period would start right around 600 BCE. Okay, so, so that's Lehi time. So that's Lehi. Lehi's leaving right before Jerusalem falls to Babylon, which begins the Babylonian uh, exile. And that exile ends in 539 BCE. So about 61 years later, Cyrus the Great and the Persian Empire conquers Babylon and takes over. Then we have the beginning of the Persian period, and that lasts until... 334-ish BCE when Alexander the Great comes through and ushers in the Hellenistic period. Okay. So, yeah, well, that can be confusing. Just to finish that up, when did Rome take over from Greece? Um, so it happened in, in different places in different time periods, but uh, around 63 BCE is when Rome initially annexes uh, the uh, the land that we would refer to as Israel. Where, when um, Israel was independent, I guess there was a time before Rome and after Alexander the Great. How approximately do you know when that was? So, uh, yeah, this was after Alexander the Great, you have the Diadochi, which is the, f the fight among his generals for who's controlling things. And you have the Ptolemaic Empire, you have the Seleucid Empire, you have others. Uh, you have the Maccabees, in the middle of the second century BCE. So right around 165-ish BCE is where you have Antiochus Epiphanes IV, um, and the Maccabees are able to, to fight off um, the, the pressure from the Seleucid Empire. And so from that time period all the way down to about 63 so BCE. So about 100 years. Uh, ish, yeah, you have, uh, you have some independence and you even have some people um, calling themselves kings. So um, there is, for a period, a kind of a restoration of... Uh, and that's where we get to Hanukkah? Uh-huh. Um, okay. All right, cool. I wanted to make sure I had that time frame. Okay, so um, this brings up another question in the, um, in the Book of Mormon. I, I do remember... <laughs> there, are, there are some critics who say that the Isaiah chapters... 
um, in the Book of Mormon come from either second or third Isaiah, maybe a combination. I can't remember. Yeah, there, there's a. It's kind of scattered around, but there are some some passages quoted. And there so definitely. that would be problematic because they're after Lehi left, right? Right. Do you have a comment on that? Um, it, it's just as problematic as, as the fact that Paul seems to be quoted, um, at, even in the King James Version translation of the New Testament. So that, that kind of stuff is scattered all over the Book of Mormon. But yeah, that, that's an issue that I don't think has been adequately engaged by Latter-day Saints trying right. to defend the, uh, the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Well, it does seem like most... And So the funny thing was, because I remember I talked to Sandra Tanner about this issue, and, and I said... It was one of my favorite questions. So you would agree that there was only one Isaiah? You would agree with the BYU scholars there was only one Isaiah? And she said yes. I was, I was kind of surprised. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be because she's more of a evangelical conservative, and I guess that would be, you know, kind of that a conservative That would be the party position. line, yeah. yeah. For, for um, it's leaving cards on the table, though. <laughs> for her. Yeah. So it was funny because I was like, oh, you actually agree with BYU. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, what, do, what are your thoughts on that issue? Um, my thoughts on that are that we don't have a good enough idea of how Joseph Smith is supposed to have translated the Book of Mormon. There are tight control translation theories. There are loose control translation theories. And if you... Uh, argue for tight control that brings all these things in and, and you find yourself having to stake claims that are not really defensible. Right. The loose control translation theory brings in other issues and a lot of those issues have to do with authority and with boundary maintenance and things like that. Uh, but that allows you to get around some of those issues by saying the way the text is articulated uh, can also be the responsibility of, of the modern people involved, Joseph Smith, others who, who are writing these things. And I, and I think there are arguments to make that, that Joseph Smith's own uh, experiences and life found their uh, experiences in life found their way into the pages of the Book of Mormon. Don Bradley has been doing a lot of good work on how some aspects of the Book of Mormon seem to reflect things that were going on in Joseph Smith's lifetime. And I don't think there's a case to make that Joseph Smith's own agency uh, was not involved in the articulation of the Book of Mormon. I just, I, I don't see a case to make for that. And so I think Latter-day Saint authors who want to preserve the inspiration of the Book of Mormon need to find a way to uh, negotiate with that uh, observation. Um, otherwise, I, I think it's drawing lines that, that are not incredibly defensible and are coming down to dogmatism and, uh, and, and are not adequately grappling with the data. I think if, if you want the Book of Mormon to be an ancient text at all, you have to acknowledge that Joseph Smith played a role in its articulation in some way, shape, or form. Now that's not, um, I'm not making that uh, argument myself, I'm just observing that if you want to preserve that, I, I don't see a way you can do it without acknowledging Joseph Smith uh, had a hand in it to some degree or another. Because I don't know, I mean, I, I agree with you, I don't know how anybody can look at the Book of Mormon and, and maintain a tight translation policy. I mean, I, and I'm trying to even think of who's left. Uh, <laughs> is it Royal Skousen? Is he the only one? <laughs> I, I don't know what, where, um, where Royal Skousen stands these days. My understanding is that his, 
his stance has softened a little bit, but I don't want to be speaking out of school because I really don't know. Yeah. I mean, we can look at the Old Testament, and, and it seems like the Israelites were always having a problem with idol worship yeah. <laughs> throughout, throughout the whole entire Old Testament. Um, can we pinpoint at this time as to when did that actually end, and then they became true monotheists? Um, I don't. I don't think the the idol worship is a good proxy for for the um, the threshold of monotheism. But I think that once in, in my book, I argue that the attention, the the things that divine images were supposed to do for people, were accomplished by the text of the law and by the biblical text itself. And so I th I think once the biblical text became the locus of authority and the locus of divine presence, you had less of a problem with people uh, resorting to idol worship. At that point, the idol worship was probably more a product of feeling pressure to fit in with the broader empire, whichever empire was in control. And so I think that's probably what eased the pressure of the whole idol worship thing was we came up with a, a substitute and that would be the text of the law, the Torah, and then, and then the biblical text, and then the Bible once that was formulated. So I think that takes the place of idol worship. But uh, monotheism itself, I think, was a, something that required uh, quite complex philosophical frameworks to, to develop. And so I think that was something that was probably medieval in origin, something that uh, didn't happen until you get into medieval Jewish, medieval Islamic uh, philosophers, and then later Christian. See, thinkers. that seems way too late for me and for most people. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, but that's that's the case that uh, we're going to be making in our. Because I mean, this kind of gets into the New Testament period, I guess. Which we can we can go there, um, because you know, there's the whole argument about the Trinity, and you know, the. For the Christians were accused of not being monotheists, weren't they? Because if we have a son of God, how can they be? How can that be monotheism? Yeah, and and this was one of the things that the Trinity is trying to resolve. Right. It's it's trying to. Um, and so that was that was like Constantine, wasn't it? Um. Yeah, it's around that time period. Yeah. Um. But so even that, back then, I mean, that's clear. That's before the medieval times, right? Right. So even back in the fourth century, you know, three hundreds. Christians were being accused of, of not being monotheists because they believed in God and Jesus. Right. Now, that's mostly about who they're worshiping. And so a, a lot of this comes down to how you understand monotheism. Is okay. it the belief that only one God exists? Is it the worship of only one God? Is it both? Is it something else entirely? When we look at the development of the, the word monotheism and how it's used when it gets created, it's not just one deity. That's a bit of an etymological fallacy. That's what we see when it first shows up in dictionaries, is this idea that monotheism just means belief in one deity. But when the word is created and is developed, it's not just one deity. It's one deity who creates out of nothing. It's uh, one deity who is uh, immaterial. It's uh, one deity who um, has all these other features associated with it. Um, it's not reducible down to just the concept of, of one deity. And that's from the, the guy who came up with the term, Henry Moore, 
um, all the way through to today, monotheism is, is kind of a conceptual package that's pretty complex. So when we want to go look into antiquity, you don't see the idea of uh, creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, until the second century CE at the earliest. That's the, the academic consensus right now, is that it developed in the late second century by Christians. You don't have the idea of the complete immateriality of deity until even after that. Uh, third, fourth century is when the, the, um, you pivot towards a deity that is not corporeal at all. And so it depends on how you want to understand the concept of monotheism, but the, if we look at how people use the term and try to suss out all of the stuff they mean by the term, that whole package is something that I would say doesn't really firm up until the medieval period. But there are aspects of it, there are constituent elements of it that I would agree are earlier than that. So go back to debates in the 2nd and the 3rd and the 4th century CE about one God, and uh, even debates about the materiality of deity and, and things like that that are 2nd, 3rd, 4th century CE. So I don't think there's a clear line we can draw and say on one side is not monotheism, on the other side is monotheism. I think we have a whole constellation of features, and we can point to some ones that are kind of central to the idea that are starting to crystallize as we get from the 2nd into the 3rd and the 4th century CE. But I would say the package itself we don't see until the, the medieval period, and it's, it's Jewish and Muslim philosophers who are coming up with it first, and then the Reformation, the Renaissance, and the Enlightenment is where Christianity, I would argue, picks up on it. But that's, and that's an argument that I'm still developing for a book that I'm writing, so. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so preview. So, yeah, it's, that's a, a bit of a preview. Well, I'm glad, it just, I guess I'm still stuck on the Trinity, because it seems to me the reason why Christians came up with the Trinity was to resolve this problem about whether Christians were polytheistic or monotheistic. But they, I mean, I understand that the word didn't appear until the 1700s, but, but isn't, isn't that what the argument's about? I, I think the argument's about who's being worshipped. And so is it, is it only one God that's being worshipped, or are you worshipping multiple deities? And the worship of multiple deities, I think, is, is related, but is not, is not the whole picture. Um, and so, because like today, if you look up uh, monotheism in the dictionary, it doesn't say worship of only one God. It says belief that only one God exists. Uh, the worship of only one God to the exclusion of any others that may exist. Uh, there have been a couple different terms that have been, have been floated as, as replacements for that. So uh, one of them is henotheism. One of them is monolatry. Um, you also have this other one that, that is not very popular, monarchism. All these are ideas that we only worship one God, but we don't deny that other deities exist. And... So historically, scholars have not liked using the word monotheism to communicate that idea. So it's messy, and like there's obviously, obviously the debates that are going on leading up to the Trinity are very closely related to what develops later when they talk about monotheism. But I don't think they're the exact same thing, and I don't think it provides any clarity to argue they're the same thing. I think people want them to be the same thing because that, uh, that creates ideological continuity with the past. Mm -hmm. And it says, 
we're just the same as them. And so the scholars who would argue, oh no, they were monotheists who wrote the New Testament, they're arguing that because it means they get to be part of the same group. Right. They're, they're one of us, we're one of them. And, and so that serves entirely distinct rhetorical purposes than what I think the academic endeavor should be aiming for, which is to understand how they functioned, not to make them, you know, to rope them into our, our group, if that makes any sense. I mean, it does. I feel I'm fighting within myself because it's so... I mean, I love this kind of conversation, but in my study of early Christianity, and I can't touch you, <laughs> but, but I think I'm better than the average bear. Yeah, oh you know? yeah, no doubt. And so, because the Christians, especially in the Roman Empire, would make fun of the, and I don't know a better word other than the pagans, you know, the ones who worshipped... Zeus and you know Jupiter and Mars and everybody like how stupid what is dumb religion like they used to insult the Roman religion all the time you know and and even oh what's that guy's name there was a wonderful PBS series called the first Christians there's two parts to it um, I'm trying to remember what the scholar was but uh, he was talking about um, just how the Christians would just make fun of the Romans all the time, and that the Romans had to make an accommodation for, especially the, at least the Jews, because the Christians were just a weird cult, you know, um, that they would only worship one God, because, I mean, Caesar was a god, right? Uh, Julius Caesar. And so, the under the Roman religion, you had to accept that the the emperor was a god and so they just had to accommodate these jews who were just like no we are never gonna worship caesar we don't believe in that um and so it just seems like and and maybe this is just me projecting back but it seems like the jews were very even monotheistic especially under the roman empire Am I, am I reading that wrong? or? Well, I, I think um, if we look at a lot of the data, and, and folks like Paula Fredrickson and Matthew yeah. Novenson and others have done a lot of good work recently to show that it, the picture is a lot more complex. And when, if you were in a Jewish group, when you were just among yourselves, not worrying about what was going on outside, you know, we see um, headstones that reference other deities, and we see dedications, and uh, uh, patrons of uh, certain organizations that have Jewish names and they're making donations uh, in the names of, of other deities and stuff like that. Like Among themselves it didn't seem to be a big deal to acknowledge other deities and even to make offerings and things other like that. Other deities such as? Uh, Roman deities. So um, yeah. Zeus, Mars, Jupiter. Everybody. Yeah, but when somebody from the outside came in and challenged you or tried to force something upon you, that went, that's when you would say, no, 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 we don't do that. And so it was about that schismogenesis, it was about that boundary maintenance, it was about um, distinguishing your identity from uh, the oppressor or the person who's trying to come in and trying to um, manipulate you or influence you. And so I think in, it's situationally emergent. There are times when you would say, oh yeah, not a big deal, I don't care. 
And there are other times when you would draw the line in the sand to preserve your identity, to preserve your autonomy, and to to um, draw that distinction. And so I think it, it, it really is complex and it doesn't come down to they all had this this idea in their heads that there could be only one deity and that it was totally inappropriate to ever do anything that acknowledged or gave worship or praise to other deities. I think it was something where in certain situations we want to project this idea and in other situations wasn't as big a deal. Um, and, and that's what uh, hopefully we're going to address in this conference come next March, talk about how the picture is muddied by the actual data on the ground that shows that people were acknowledging other deities. There were people who named their kids after other deities. There were people who donated money so buildings could be built where other deities were being uh, worshipped or acknowledged or, or things like that. So, um, yeah, and, and, and we see similar things uh, going on even in, in Latter-day Saint culture. I mean, there are times when, uh, you know, we, we have pretty red lines that we draw within our culture, but there are other things where, um, you know, we might say the ox is in the mire. It's not a big, as big a deal. Um, it reminds me, I was working at a BYU game recently, and the was he a producer director? One of the guys said, "You know, it's really funny that BYU has a coach named Pope, <laughs> Mark Pope." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, with with things like like modesty culture, you know, we've got. You know, you're not allowed to wear something that goes above this, unless you're playing volleyball. <laughs> and you can be on TV and everything. Right. And, and you can be wearing uh, or basketball. Or, I mean, or basketball. Yeah. You can have the. Yeah. Like like those are situations where, in certain situations, not a big deal. In other situations, we're drawing a hard line there, and it's a you know, it's a hard no from us. Okay, so that's what what you're saying when the Jews yeah. would would make offerings to Mars or Apollo or whoever. Yeah, I think there was there were situations where it wasn't as big a deal, and then there were other situations where their identity was on the line, or where their autonomy or their even their safety was on the line, and that is where they had to do the credibility enhancing display or the costly signaling to show, to project outward, this is who we are and, and we're not going to compromise, even though when you know the Romans weren't around, it wasn't as big a deal. Um, so I, I think it, it's, it's a complex question and you know we're, we're taking contemporary categories and then just trying to put them in antiquity and it gets messy. So, so I don't like reducing it to um, to oh yeah they were definitely monotheists when all you know we're we're manipulating the way we understand monotheism just to make sure that it fits. Well, it reminds me of the story. I'm trying to remember where I read this. Um, that Mitt Romney's father, George Romney, he was the governor of Michigan, and he used to have alcohol in his house, and he would serve it to his guests just kind of as a polite thing. I mean, I can't imagine growing up with alcohol in my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but he would he would do this just because everybody drank, and he was just being accommodating. And and there are and you know with uh, Steve Young and other and Bryce Harper, you know they uh, they get held up as as um, you know wonderful examples of of Bryce the faith. Harper. Are you sure? Well, n not in that sense, but they get highlighted as as Latter Day Saints who um, you know have worked probably almost every single Sunday right. of their adult life. And and so it's situational. 
when these lines have to be drawn and when they don't. And even I, uh, working for the, I'm worried okay. I keep hitting my microphone. <laughs> um, and even I, uh, you know, when I would travel for work, uh, there wasn't a Sunday that I was uh, gone somewhere for work where I didn't eat in a restaurant. Um, and so, you know, there's there's just times when the line gets drawn and other times when it doesn't. And, and so I, I think it does more damage to our ability to understand how they lived their Judaism or their Christianity in uh, antiquity uh, to say, oh yeah, they were, they were definitely monotheists. Um, I, it doesn't help us understand things that way. And so I'd, I'd rather we say it's complex so that we don't then, because if we say, oh, they were all monotheists, that colors how we reconstruct their lived experiences anciently, because then we shove aside all those experiences where they didn't draw those lines, and we don't get to understand the, the experiences fully. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, still a, a healthy debate, and I'm sure it will be for many years to come, but that's, that's the position I take on it. Okay, very good. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Dan McClellan. In our next conversation, we're going to talk about the wise men. Did they come from Iran? From the East, uh, the Iranian-associated um, wise people would be the most likely candidates. So Most likely? I, I think so. A friend of mine named uh, Eric Van Den Eichel just published uh, a book on the Magi, which is uh, uh, like literally four or five months ago. Thanks for listening to Gospel Tangents. If you'd like to support me, please subscribe at gospeltangents.com or on patreon.com slash gospeltangents, or you can watch entire videos at youtube.com slash gospeltangents. I really can't do this without your support. I'd love to do it full time, and I need a lot more people that are willing to, to help me out. So I'd really appreciate that. So thanks again for listening, and don't forget to check out some of our other videos.